1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Read any manual on handling a major crisis and they'll all emphasize the need for strong, authoritative, and most of all, effective leadership. Now, Childers had no experience in that space, and 20 years ago, local governments certainly weren't flush with strategic advisors and communications professionals, especially in small regional towns. But Childers had a man at the helm who the community knew could provide direction and stability through its darkest
3: hour. My name's Bill Trevor, and at the time of the fire on June 23rd, I was the mayor of Isis
1: Bill Trevor was born and bred in Childers, a fourth-generation farmer responsible for a plot started by his great-grandfather, initially as sugar cane, at best guess, somewhere around 1894. As times changed, so did the farm, and by the mid-80s, it was producing veggies, mainly zucchinis, and hiring backpackers to pick them. Bill was a man of the land, broad in stature with hulking hands to match. His face, framed by a tightly cropped beard, balanced out by a softness in his voice and a tireless passion for his town.
3: It was certainly a community that um, had a bright future in the agricultural sector. We certainly didn't expect to run into the tragedy uh, that befell us uh, on the night of the June 23rd. But uh, overall, it was a very supportive community, one that looked after one another in hard times mm. and good people, huh? real good people. Yeah, salt-of-the-earth people. uh, You know, this community had been through major droughts and those sort of things over a period of time. Those things make a community pull together. Hard times in uh, the sugar industry from time to time and uh, some of the vegetable industries, but overall it was a community that uh, worked well together. Most of all, they supported Bill.
1: They elected him to council in 1985. By 1993, he was the local mayor. Only a few months earlier he'd helped recruit Steve Johnston.
4: I was the uh, chief executive officer of the then-Isis Shire Council. I came up from New South Wales in uh, February 2000. That was my first job north of the border. Married then with, uh, and still am, still married, uh, the two-year-old daughter, and we bought a house at Woodgate. Um, Loved Woodgate, uh, loved working for the council. Started there, I think, on about the 7th of February, and the fire happened on the 23rd of June. So I'd really just sort of settled into my job as the as the new CEO, uh, getting to know the town, getting to know the region.
1: They were a dynamic duo and had already strategised a plan to ensure the long-term viability of the Childers community. They were due to attend a meeting together in Brisbane on the morning of June 23, which Steve had already driven down for.
4: Ironically, The council of the day was concerned that at some point the main road was going to bypass children, so we were no longer going to have the national highway through the town. So we embarked on a pretty ambitious plan to do a lot of park redevelopment, to do main street improvements, to basically make the town a place where people wanted to come in in the event that it was bypassed and and stop. We had a clock tower in the park opposite the palace building, uh, it was one of those old 1960s clock towers made of cream brick. People used to joke that you could get four different times off it, so a lot of those old clocks themselves didn't work. Because Childers is heritage listed, we hadn't really probably thought about this, the clock tower itself was heritage listed. So the morning of the fire, I was actually in Brisbane meeting with the Queensland Heritage Council to try and get permission to have the clock tower removed.
3: The morning of the 23rd is vividly imprinted on my brain. I had a phone call uh, probably about quarter past two, half past two in the evening This way there'd been a bit of a fire at the palace. There was certainly no indication of loss of light from that phone call. I was supposed to catch a plane to Brisbane at half past six in the morning at a Bundaberg airport and for some uneasy reason I said to my wife, look, I'm, I'm showering, going to Childers early. I, I just want to see what's happened and uh, driving into town that day... Uh, Coming to the roadblock, it was a foggy morning and and the smoke was hanging in the air, and it's vividly imprinted on my brain as I drove up towards the post office that morning uh, to see the palace uh, shrouded in smoke and fog, the flashing lights of the fire brigade. But what will haunt me for the rest of my life is looking across uh, just outside on the footpath, outside the post office, was a number of kids sitting there in their underwear. Uh, supported by some locals who'd thrown some blankets around some shoulders but gazing up into the palace. At that stage, they were probably aware that some of their mates uh, hadn't got out and it was almost as if they were willing them to join them on the footpath. That's an image that I can close my eyes and see every day of the week.
1: It's not until after that meeting in Brisbane that Steve takes a call from Deputy Mayor Tony Riccardi, alerting him about what's happened back in Childers.
4: And I'm not sure whether Tony had, you know, fully understood then what what had happened. Um, And I guess I didn't, I I think I went and turned the TV on because, you know, obviously I thought it will be on TV as it was. And I probably didn't appreciate the extent and the seriousness of it until I'd actually saw it on TV rather than what Tony had told me on the phone. And then I started to understand exactly what had happened and how serious it was and what what the likely body count was going to be
1: so he gets in the car and heads north. He's just over an hour into the trip when he gets tragic news of his own.
4: I got halfway back to Noosa and my mother rang me to tell me my grandmother had died, so my mother's mother. So I decided that I probably wasn't in the right shape at that point to go back to Childers. Uh, so we overnighted in uh, Noosa with some friends and drove back on the next day, so um, I sort of two days later. Um, Mum asked me to do the eulogy at my grandmother's funeral, uh, which was in Port Macquarie. So I came back to work for those three days and then flew back down south uh, to go to the funeral and deliver the eulogy. So I was, I guess, obviously very upset about my uh, my grandmother. Uh, She was the last of my four grandparents to die and probably the one that I'd had the most to do with as a kid. But I also recognised that we had um, a pretty serious situation to deal with in Childers.
1: By this stage, Bill has a clearer understanding of what they're dealing with. There was no point sugarcoating the extent of the damage.
3: As I stepped across the road and uh, ran into the uh, police and fire is, they said, look, this is a bad one. At that stage, we thought there may be 20-something missing. We uh, sensed the magnitude of the tragedy. Uh, We're a small rural community. It's not something you expect to happen in what you class as a safe community. But it it became very evident that there was just so many things to do and and, uh, didn't get a lot of time to think in that first hour or two. And being on the national highway, we we had to divert traffic uh, because of uh, the fact that uh, part of the palace was threatening to fall into the main street. It it was a hectic two or three hours. He called for backup
1: and knew where to find it.
5: My name's Nancy Calder and I was the director of special projects and cultural programs for the Ayrshire Shire Council.
1: Nancy too was born and bred in Childers. She was lured back to the area in 1987, so she had a long working history with Bill Trevor.
5: I went away and travelled the world, and did all sorts of things and had my own business, and then my family was still here, as in sisters. And I came back for a holiday, and it was Alf Plath, who was the former mayor before Bill. He came and approached me about setting up the Pharmaceutical Museum. Council had just bought this old pharmacy that went back to 1894. So I went in and set that up for them, and then became given this title that the council could ask me to do anything. (laughs) Really?
1: Really? She was about to take on roles and responsibilities she could never have envisaged.
5: Bill rang me at I don't know, two o'clock in the morning or three o'clock, whatever it was. And he said, can you come into town? We've got a problem up here.
3: You realize when you have a large number of survivors um, that you have to house them and feed them and, and support the emergency service that came to uh, find out uh, what had happened and how it had happened. So. We, we had two functions at that time one was to look after the kids from a feeding and, and clothing and and that you've got to understand some of these guys escaped uh, just in their underwear so uh, they didn't have clothes on their back
5: we opened the cultural center and we had to get somewhere that the survivors could go that we could look after them and prepare meals and everything else for them, but keep them secure. And so the cultural centre in the main street of Childers became their home. Most of them walked out with nothing. They didn't have glass, they couldn't see, they had no clothes.
1: More volunteers arrived, like Trish Clutterbuck from the local St Vincent de Paul charity store.
0: I had a phone call from uh, Pauline, who lived down behind the uh, main street in Macrossan Street, and she said, the backpackers is on fire, and the kids from the backpackers are all running around outside.
1: what do you think then when you get a call like that?
0: Well, I thought straight away we'd have to get up and um, see what we could do to help. So I went to... I rang a lady who I knew had a key. I didn't have one at the time. So I... um, went down and picked her up. We opened up the shop, we rang a couple of other people and they came in. And when we got there, there had been a hospital uh, laundry truck passed through and they'd stopped and they'd given a lot of white cotton woven blankets to them and they were running around with the blankets because it was cold weather. And they were running around with blankets around them. So they all came into the shop, they were pretty shocked and they were running around looking for their friends and they were really worried because they couldn't find three of them and of course that Got to be a lot more than three So they came and we just told them to take what they wanted out of the shop
1: What's the state of mind of those kids when they're coming into the they shop? They were what did in you shock.
0: They were in shock one, one of the lads um, he put a shirt on he had he said, oh, I'll have to get a tie. You put a tie on, you know, you've got to look respectable. But it, it was all shock, you could tell. They they didn't know what was happening and they were running around asking each other, have you seen this one, have you seen that one? And they worked out, as I said, three of their friends they couldn't find, but it turned out to be a lot more.
1: Do you think at the time they understood the magnitude of it?
0: Possibly not, possibly not. I. Th- I I don't think they've had time to think.
1: The ladies in the shop called for more help. Among them was Donna Duncan.
0: It was still dark,
2: it was probably about four o'clock, and it was one of the ladies from St Vinnie's and said, there's been a fire, is there any chance you could come and give us a hand? Because I was fairly well known for doing volunteer stuff and picking up lost souls all over the place. We were fostering at the time still, And I didn't think anything. I said, oh, yeah, okay, just give me 10 minutes to get dressed. And I drove up the street. I parked um, outside the courthouse and I looked across. And the first thing I will always remember is it was a really foggy morning and the survivors had sheets and they were just everywhere. They were sitting in gutters and on the steps of the post office and underneath in the little um, roundabouts and and I remember thinking, oh, my God, this is not good. I could, I could smell the smoke. I could see these young people. And, and you have to try and understand from my point of view, I've been a foster carer for a very long time, so I take in young people who are at the most traumatised time of their lives from whatever sort of abuse they've had so I understand that that trauma that's instantly there and the shock, and and I think I was in shock too for a little while until the reality of the whole situation just hits you in the head and says, no point in you going down in a screaming heap, you've got people to help. And then a little bit later on, it was just like, at that time we had just tried to comfort people and, Brought people back here to have showers and some of them only had their undies on, they had nothing else. So we brought them back here to have showers and we've got extra shower facilities down there and we were working at the time, we were packing avocados, smack bang in the middle of an avocado season.
1: Things are moving at a rapid rate. Bill and Nancy are leading the immediate community response. Daylight has just broken when Bill calls a meeting with the volunteers in the council chambers. What was the job he gave you?
2: to go that way, go that side of the town and go up and down all the streets and see if we could find these, and we did, we found them, and there was only three of them missing, but they were all found in different parts of the town. Mm. I think Bill was concerned that maybe there were more fatalities upstairs, that um, they weren't deceased and they weren't in, in amongst the survivors that were walking around. So he sent a group of us in different directions, asked which of us had cars, and I, my car was at the courthouse, so he said to me, you go that way. And I found um, Noga, the Israeli girl, who's... She was way out near the dump, and she couldn't understand English. She, she's fluent in English, but her body was in shock. Her whole system was... But Noga just walked. She said to me, she's told me since, that there was no sense of direction, there was nothing. She just walked. On her own? On her own, with a sheet. Her whole system was in shock and she just couldn't understand English. We ended up having to get some Israeli people from one of the backpacking units in Bundaberg to come over and translate for her because obviously the police needed to interview her. Um, And that was the beginning of... A
1: fairly horrendous couple of weeks. Truth be told, the community response really was only just getting started. As the hours passed, more and more people offered their assistance. And despite everything else going on around him, Bill remained calm and clear about what needed to be done and who he wanted doing it. It set the tone and the standard for how Childers, over the coming days, weeks, even months and years, would take care of the backpackers and the long-term reputation of their town.
2: The second meeting that he called was to say to people, all right, you've got a job. Are you able to handle this? If you can't do it, say now, and and we'll get either some help or we'll get others around. Because I'm involved with fruit and veg guys, I had fairly good access to crops like fruit and citrus and all that sort of stuff, and we had avocados and custard apples. Tom was working for a local transport company picking up produce from different farms right out to Jinjin. So he had access to that as well. So I just said, yeah, we'd we'd do it, and we did. Mm. That day I went around town Once we got everybody safe and inside and we put sentries at the gate to stop (laughs) you guys getting in, then I just went all around town, the bakeries and the butchers, and said, whatever you've got left over today, can I have it? And the way small towns work, if you've been involved with a small town, people rally and they like to protect their own, and if there is young ones in trouble like the backpackers, they just sit with them.
4: And so businesses
1: just gave up food and yep. drink and, you yep. yep.
2: And we had pallets of stuff that were donated that came through from Lindsay Brothers Transport, who Tom worked for, and I had that many phone calls saying we're sending this stuff over and the Red Cross sent pallets and pallets of water and and that all just went up there. The, the clothes and all that sort of stuff that came in, well, they went down into the bottom of the cultural centre and ladies went in there and
3: sorted it out.
2: But this stuff, it was miraculous. It just kept appearing.
3: I have some vivid pictures of the security standing outside the cultural centre and a couple of pensioners stepping forward. Uh, One lady had baked a cake and she wanted to give something. She didn't have a lot of money, but for her baking that cake, taking the time, buying the ingredients and wanting to donate it to the kids that had survived to help showed me the depth of spirit within our community and how much uh, support we got from the community.
1: And that's symbolic, isn't it? The cake in itself is a bit of a metaphor for how the community
3: responded. Yeah, look, it's, it's not about what you give. It's in proportion. And to her, that was probably like someone of means donating several thousands of dollars. But there was a need to do something in her mind. And I think that embodied the spirit of the community at the time.
2: Everyone just rallied around. And they cried tears with the backpackers and the survivors and talked about families and sat with them on the floor. And
5: Chulis is such a strong community that everybody just gets in and does what they can. Everything happens just automatically. You had shops coming in and saying, OK, if any, if any of the survivors want haircuts or anything else anything to do with the head, bring them over to the hairdressing salon and we'll look after them over here. No charge, no charge for any of this. Food came in, just kept rolling through the door. Fruit and Veggie Growers Association just brought cases and cases of... Because Feeding 69 plus all the investigation police that arrived in from Brisbane and all the um, diplomatic people that came in from the consulates... They all had to be fed and looked after. So, um, uh, it's a very strong community that way. They they really band together.
1: The mood in that room when you first went in.
2: It was, you could feel it, you could almost touch it. It was sad, it was, there wasn't any anger by that time, but it was just melancholy. Really, really sad, and... You, you would look around and there's one of them crying and so you go and try and comfort that one and there's nothing you could say, there's nothing you can do except just go and give them a hug or hold their hand or do whatever they want to do. But the, the mood in that whole building was something I don't really want to ever go through again.
3: We wanted to create a situation where we didn't want the kids harassed, they were all in shock, uh, They were all processing uh, what had just happened and and their escape and trying to process the fact that some of their friends hadn't escaped from the hostel. And so we made that the sanctuary point. We put uh, security on there. If the kids wanted to go and talk to the media, that was their democratic right and that happened. But the media couldn't go in there and harass them. And the same thing at night. We commandeered off the motels and uh, security there and that was also a place at night that they went to. If they stepped outside and wanted to talk to someone, then they could. Uh, we put in telephone lines. Paul Neville, our MP, the federal MP at the time, organised Telstra to put in telephone lines because a lot of the kids just wanted to ring home to hear mum or dad's voice, uh, to hear their siblings' voices or a boyfriend or girlfriend that they'd left behind or or whatever, friends. So uh, they were able to pick up that telephone, courtesy of Telstra, any time of the day and night. Mm. In the weeks and months after
1: the fire... Donna's front door was never locked. There wasn't any need, really. There was always someone there. It became a safe house of sorts, somehow becoming a come and go as you please system that could have had as many as 20 backpackers at a time camping on the lounge room floor.
2: With that first 12 months, we never knew who was going to come in and out. But having said that, it was always really emotional. I can't tell you the amount of times that we put backpackers on buses and I was like a blubbering idiot. And we just kept saying goodbye all the time. They're part of your family now, forever. They're going to be part of your family. And we had to put them on buses and say goodbye again. Taking Noami to Brisbane to put her on a plane was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I took my daughter with me and cried half the way down and bawled all the way back. She had to drive.
1: <laughs> and I guess that just sums up. How close you actually did get to them?
2: I think you. I think you do when when you've got people who've been through something as traumatic as that, and you know yourself in the work that you do. I'm sure you've heard people say before night times are the worst, and night times are the worst. And at that time of the year, there were still lots of cane fires, so you've got. Backpackers lying on a bed with you lying next to them, holding their hands, and all of a sudden you can smell this smoke and it's like, oh, my God. The amount of times that people would panic and just rush out to see where it was, it was most times cane fires. A couple of times they made me get in the car and drive around to find where it was coming from so that they knew that it wasn't a building or something. Wow. Mm. I can honestly say that if the siren in town goes off, and I hear sirens of emergency vehicles and my phone rings, I don't answer the phone because I know I won't have the guts to say, no, I can't come and help. (laughs) That's brave, isn't it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, but it shows the profound impact of what that event on June 23, 2000
2: had on you. The smoke smell even gets to me. Helicopters get me.
1: Talking about the fire remains very raw for everyone involved. As I chatted to Donna from the dining room of her children's home, she hands me a folder full of memoirs. In it, there's newspaper cuttings, magazine articles and heartwarming letters and postcards from the backpackers she cared for after the fire. Some are handwritten, some are printed emails sent from Hotmail accounts in internet cafes all over the world. They're snapshots of travels, Check-ins on the journey home, all with a recurring theme, love, eternal gratitude and a promise to always stay in touch. And 20 years on, they've stayed true to their word.
2: Sometimes I wake up and there's another one here. They get a shock when they try to open the door now and it's locked.
1: (laughs) What a beautiful thing that they're so comfortable to be able to do that though. And now they've got a safe place to come to
2: It is, we've always tried to make our our home a safe place for young people. Um, Yeah, then that's a good thing.
1: Now you got a, what was it that you got?
2: I got an Order of Australia medal.
1: it's on the wall, yep.
2: I do wear it. I still look at that medal and I just think, I'm just an avocado farmer's wife living in a little town and I've got this absolutely awesome medal sitting on the wall. It blows my mind. You do it because there's a need and it needs to be done. And I've always had a fairly soft spot for young people. But if we don't look after our young people, then there's no future. Those backpackers that had a positive experience after the palace and being comfortable enough to come back to town well, that's some part of their legacy and they will always think of Childers. And I wouldn't wish what happened here, I wouldn't wish this on anybody, but if it had to happen and it did happen, then I'm really proud of the way this town pulled together to protect those young people. It was just like, just like you see these mothers whose their kids have fallen down on the ground and they just run up and they put their arms around them. That's what this town did for, for those backpackers. It wasn't wasn't me, we all worked together and we, we did something that was hugely positive for these young people who just had the most awful experience of their lives. And you can take that away and think I've done something with my life. I've done a lot of drought relief work and I know um, from talking to a couple of the neighbourhood centres where we've taken stuff out to, I know that we've saved a couple of people, a couple of farmers from committing suicide. And that is unbelievably humbling because all you're doing is offering a hand and saying, this isn't much that we've got to give you, but we care if you need anything, give us us a, um, a yell. And that's the same thing with these 15 backpackers. The 15 families, we've said to them, if they ever decide to come back to town, they know where to go to. The survivors, They always let us know when they're back in town. Not a lot of people can have that in their lives. And and
1: for something so bad, we're so fortunate. Two decades since the Palace fire and survivors and the families of all those who were in the building that night continue to praise the community response. It was an army of many, impossible to mention everyone, but you're all local heroes for the part you played in this major historical incident. Be sure to stop into to Childers on your travels along the Queensland coastline to pay your respects at the very moving memorial to the 15 victims who lost their lives. This podcast is written and produced by me, Paul Cochrane, and supported by the Bundaberg Regional Council. Keep listening, hit subscribe, and please make sure you tell your friends and family about the podcast. Thanks for tuning in.